House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. And joining us, the other voice you hear on there is Edward Butts. He's the uh, author of many books. Hey, Ed, thank you for joining us today. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So, listen, let's, uh, this is the first time on the show, so maybe uh, tell people, uh, you've written several books. Um, so tell us a little bit about your history so listeners know who you are. Uh, okay, well, I, um, I am uh, an author. I've had uh, 20-some books published. Um, most of them are historical nonfiction uh, several of them have been true crime history. Um, for example, I did one book that was called uh, Running with Dillinger, uh, in which the principal of the story is a guy named Red Hamilton, who was uh, a Canadian who was a member of the Dillinger gang. And one of the interesting aspects of that one was that um, Red, ha Red Hamilton was supposed to have been killed in a, a shooting. However, there is um, a man who lives in New Mexico uh, named Bruce Hamilton, who is actually, he's, and he is, uh, and, like, elderly. Uh, he's actually uh, Bruce Hamilton's um, nephew, and he claims that, uh, or he's Red Hamilton's nephew, rather, excuse me. He claims that his uncle was not killed at all, but uh, survived the gunshot wound and escaped to Canada and quietly lived to a ripe old age. Wow. Um, so, so that, yeah, that is, that is like one of the books that I've done. And the most recent one is called uh, The Mad, Bad, and Dangerous, uh, Volume 1, which is a collection of true murder stories. What's what's particularly special about the uh, mad, bad, and uh, dangerous to know? Like, what's what's kind of the um, idea behind the book? Um, well, the it's to try and uh, trying to bring out some um, murder stories that are not all that well known. Uh, you know, there there are some stories that are you know they're so thoroughly well known that uh, they're iconic. But uh, the, these stories are some of the less-known ones, and I, I have to um, I have to admit that I sort of uh, stole the title from the uh, the famous story of uh, Lord Byron and Lady Caroline Lamb. Uh, they, they had a scandalous affair back at the beginning of the near the beginning of the 19th century, and after. Uh, Byron uh, dumped <laughs> Lady Caroline Lamb. She told other people that he was mad, bad, and dangerous to know. And <laughs> I just thought that that was the perfect title for a book like this. What 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 is the most unusual um, murder crime or crime story that you've uh, come across for this book? Um. Hmm, the most unusual. I, I guess the well, they they all would have a, something about them that's um, uh, a bit odd. Uh, the the first story in the book, which is called um, 
It's called Mad Shortus, and it's about a, a man named Valentine Shortus, who was born in Ireland to a very wealthy family. Um, his father thought that he was uh, too much of a, a mother's boy, and uh, when he was a teenager, sent him to Montreal, where he had business connections, to, um, to try and learn how to stand on his own two feet. And instead, um, he, because he had been somewhat pampered and spoiled, he wasn't really able to keep a job. And he wound up trying to pull an armed robbery, and he killed two men. And uh, there was a huge um, uh, trial over it uh, because um, because of the man's social position, the uh, the case reached into the highest offices of the country. Uh, the office of the Prime Minister and the office of the Governor General of Canada, and there was the, the big question was whether or not he was sane when he committed the murder. He was found guilty, and something like two days before he was due to hang, uh, the sentence was commuted. So he spent most of the rest of his life in um, in prisons and uh, insane asylums. Uh, he was eventually paroled, and uh, and you know died uh, died as a free man. But uh, you know he had spent uh, you know the better part of his life in prison. Now, during your collecting of these stories, were you ever able to interview the actual killers? Um, no, most of the people that I have written about are dead. <laughs> But uh, there was one story that is connected to um, my own hometown of uh, Guelph, Ontario. Uh, this occurred in, uh, the murder occurred in 1984. There was a group of brothers, uh, their, their, their last name was Wood, and they were, um, they were a pretty bad outfit. I mean, uh, every, everybody was scared of them. They were involved in drug dealing and robbery and uh, this young woman who had been an on-and-off-again girlfriend to a couple of them um, was murdered because uh, she was going to be a witness against them on a robbery charge. Mm. And the, the motive behind the murder wasn't so much that the, um, the brothers were concerned about doing a bit of time uh, because of robbery, it was because of all the, the money they would miss making from drug dealing while they were in jail. So her body was found floating in Lake Ontario, and uh, eventually three of the brothers were sent to prison. Uh, there was a fourth brother that was a member of the gang, but he was already in prison when the murder was committed. And recently in my town they had a, a sort of a historical event in which all of the light posts downtown ha uh, had banners from them commemorating various incidents in the city's history. And for some reason, for the year 1984, the people who put up the banners decided to put the pictures of uh, these four criminal brothers uh, to mark that particular year and and they said it was because they wanted to show that you know the city has this history has a dark side too, and there was a bit of a local 
uproar about it because people, there are still people in town who knew that girl and uh, they didn't think that these guys' pictures should be, you know, displayed downtown on a banner. And one of the things about it is that if you if you go downtown, there is a shopping center that uh, was one of the last places that she was seen alive uh, before she went to the bar where she ran into these guys and then was not seen again. So the issue is actually them memorializing the killing by putting up posters of the men. Yeah, yeah. Some some people objected to that. They they didn't think that these guys' faces should uh, be displayed on a poster downtown. I can kind of understand that. Do you think it would have been more appropriate then to maybe put up her photo and as a victim? Yeah, perhaps. Or I would have chosen a murder from the more distant past. Ah, if, if, they, if they wanted to show the dark side of history, uh, not something that was quite so recent. And when, when I was doing some of the research on the story, I was interested to find, like, because these guys had been born in Scotland, and even though they, they grew up here, like they, they were brought here as children, they, were, they never became Canadian citizens. So when their prison time was up, they were all deported back to Scotland. And one of them had a, such a such a reputation for violence that no commercial airline would take him. He was sent back chained to the flight deck of a Canadian military aircraft. <laughs> Transportation, they used to call that, didn't they? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, sorry, Kevin. Can I just ask um, Ed a question? Sure. So, there's, a, you know, an amazing collection of stories, Ed, and, and, I'm, and I'm sure there's a little bit in all of us that is absolutely intrigued with the psychology around why people do what they do, and, and, and especially when it comes to committing some, you know, heinous crimes of murder. But what is it about, how, how is it, how do you go about researching for your, your books? How do you make sure that the, the message you're giving across in your books is as balanced as it possibly can be? Okay, um, uh, one point that I always try to make in the introduction with my books is that I never try to glamorize um, these people that I write about. I don't in any way condone their actions, and I try to not write in, any, in a manner that sensationalizes uh, criminals. Uh, I try to tell the story uh, as objectively as I can, and I, like, I think it is important that we we read these stories and know about them because, um, I mean, our our history does have a dark side, even though we need not celebrate it with banners on a flight on a light pole downtown. Uh, but we we do have to come to grips with. Uh, criminal behavior and, and why people do the things that they do uh, if we are to understand it. Uh, absolutely fascinating subject, isn't it? When, when, and I think you're absolutely right, because history in any stretch of um, life tells us about the future. So um, you know, once we understand why people do the things they do in terms of uh, murder and criminality, then obviously we can put measures in place to try and prevent it. What's been one of the most um, difficult 
stories for you to research and why? What are the most difficult stories for me to research? Um, I well, I I found that the one that I I just discussed about the the Wood Brothers murder of uh, Karen Ann Thompson was uh, a bit difficult because it happened right here in in the city uh, where I live, and yeah. I I know that there are people in town who who knew her. And so when I'm, when I'm writing, I, I have to bear in mind that this story could be read by people who were very close to her. And I, I, have, to, I have to make sure that I don't do her any sort of an, uh, of an injustice. I, I don't want to seem as if I'm trying to capitalize on somebody else's tragedy. Of course. Of course. And how, how does that equate to other books, uh, other stories? Because, of course, every, every story has a family behind it somewhere along the line that may pick up that book and read it. So how do you, is that the same, or was it more powerful because it, obviously you might bump into these people? And Well, uh, uh, given the geographic location, yeah, that one was a little bit more so. I can say that I have heard from relatives of other people that I have written about. Um, in one of my other books, I, uh, I read about, uh, I wrote about um, some uh, people who were uh, uh, bank robbers in uh, British Columbia in Vancouver, and they wound up being killed in a shootout with the police. And I, 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 I named them. I did much of the research through... Um, uh, old newspaper articles as well as uh, uh, provincial archives. And sometime after the book was published, I actually had a letter from a woman, uh, I believe she was in Manitoba, and she said that uh, one of the bank robbers I wrote about was her uncle. And she said that the family uh, had never spoken about him. She didn't really know anything much about him, only that um, the other members of the family, like if his name came up, everybody would just hush up and nobody would say a word. And so she wrote to me uh, because she said she wanted to thank me for letting her know what had actually happened to her uh, wayward uncle. Is there, is there a story, Ed, that you've, you've looked at, you've researched, and you've begun to write about that you then decided that you cannot publish? Um, mm -mm. I, off the top, I cannot think of one uh, like that, no. I, usually, by, by, by the time I start writing a story, I've, I've, I've looked at it pretty well and, uh, to, you know, see what, what everything was that went on and who was involved and, um, uh, uh, to, you know, the, to make sure it's a story that I want to write. I can tell you that there was one time that I did not accept um, a project that was offered to me by a publisher. Uh, as, as you know, there have been people who have been sent to prison for crimes uh, of which they were convicted, and then many years later it's determined that they were not guilty and they were released. And oh. there, there are a few, a few names here that are, are 
pretty famous um, because of that. And there was a publisher that wanted me to do a collection of stories about people who had been sent to prison and then released. And I, it, it just sort of bothered me because I thought, you know, a lot of these people, they, these guys spent a long time in prison and then they are released and some of them they have to, you know, they have to live under another name and, and I just thought maybe, you know, maybe they've heard, they've, they've had enough written about them. They, they, they want to forget about it. And in, I mean, may, I, I could be wrong, but I just thought that I, I would feel like I was being intrusive on, on their privacy. Even though they have been written about to a great extent in the newspapers and magazines, and I, I just thought some of them might just say, oh, come on, isn't enough enough? Well, uh, let's revisit an earlier point that you just made in that answer. Have you, in your investigation of any of these crimes, have you ever come across any evidence or any testimony that actually goes against what the what was said in court? Did did you turn up any evidence that may exonerate somebody? Um, well, you know, there for for recent crimes, um, uh, I no, I can't say that I have. There is, however, an, another story. Uh, now, this is getting a little bit off the topic of criminal history, but well, maybe not. <laughs> um, I don't know if you're familiar with the name Simon Gertie. Uh, in the American Revolution, uh, he fought on the side of the British, and uh, he had the nickname the White Indian because he uh, was said to lead Indian raids against the American frontiersmen. Uh, against frontier settlements, and he has a he has a terrible reputation in the United States. He's, you know, he's he's one of the the worst people who ever lived, as far as as some of the lore about him is concerned. But I um, I wrote a biography about him, and I discovered that a lot of the criminal activity, a lot of the savage things of which he was accused were simply not true. I mean, he was a pretty, I would say he was a pretty rough character, but uh, he was, you know, really no worse than some of the other uh, frontier people of the time. And as far as the native people were concerned, he was something of a hero because he fought against what they considered was the American um, uh, annexation of their, of their land. So in that sense, um, yeah, I, I think I did find something, uh, you know, plenty of evidence that uh, exonerated him from some of the uh, the worst stories told about him. The book, that book, by the way, is called Simon Gertie, Wilderness Warrior. Simon Gertie, Wilderness Warrior. Uh, yeah, and uh, it's actually uh, it's. Uh, it's one of of the books that I have written. It's it's of my own books, if I may say so. It's one of my favorites. Now, um, let me get your take on something that's here recent in the news. The Golden State Killer was recently captured. Um, back in April, I believe it was April, Alan, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, just shortly, yeah. Okay, now, would you... Um, 
do you have any plans, or, or is this kind of how you select your cases that you write about? Well, that one um, will probably get a lot of, of news coverage, and, and I'm sure that um, there, there will be uh, people writing about it. I, um, I like to try and find the ones that have been overlooked. Or, or maybe they were, uh, they, they might have been big news at one time in the past, but then they have been somewhat forgotten. Now, in, in the selling of your books, in the marketing, have you ever caught any, any heat from family members or, you know, people who knew the, the victims or the killers? Um, the closest thing I've had to that was, um, in, in one of my books, I had a chapter on a guy known as Blackie Odette. Now, Blackie Odette, was, he was a, a career criminal. Um, he spent time in Alcatraz and uh, other notorious prisons. And he wrote a book called Rap Sheet. Um, he had the help of a, a journalist with that. And, he, and in, in his book, Rap Sheet, he, he laid claims to... Oh, that he robbed banks with John Dillinger, and he robbed banks with Pretty Boy Floyd, and and he uh, he was with the Capone gang in Chicago, and uh, it seemed that almost every well-known criminal of the, the the gangster era was a buddy of Blackie Odette, and he also told about um, pulling a big train robbery in Canada, and uh, being sent to. Uh, uh, prison in Canada, and then making this spectacular escape. And when I started doing research, I, I found that, like, almost all of it was, was baloney. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it was, he, like, he just made it all up. And, and the journalist to, to whom he told the story just took it all as fact, and, and they produced this book. So I, I included a chapter in one of my books about Blackie Odette, and I mean I, I did talk about the the crimes that he did commit, but uh, about how a, a lot of uh, well he he would have made a pretty good Hollywood screenwriter for with some of the tales he told. Now I had a letter sometime later from a young woman who turned out to be. Um, uh, Blackie Odette's niece, and she was a bit angry uh, about what I had written in my book, and and she said, "I'm, you know, I I should sue you for libel and so on and so forth." And I replied to her, I said, "Well, listen, you know, I'm not the only person who has found out that uh, Blackie stretched the truth a little bit." I said, you know, he, he did do some other things. You can still claim that you have a colorful person in your family background. Uh, he just was not the master criminal that he made himself out to be. And she right. seemed satisfied with that. And, and that is so common of, of criminals to do that. I, I work in corrections, and a lot of them they feel that it gives them a lot of credibility inside prison if they tell these extravagant, you know, stories. Yeah. You know, and yeah, it's not me fact, saying it about them. It's them saying it about them. I'll just write what you say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you, um, I know that you have to take a lot of it with a pinch of salt. Even, um, when you, when you, 
when I'm reading the newspaper accounts of, of some of these people, when I I have to get into archives and uh, and you know dig out the old stories, and you you read what the uh, various uh, robbers and killers and what have you had to say, and you have to take a lot of it with a pretty large grain of salt. <laughs> I know here, here in the UK, I mean, I've I've um, been fortunate enough, I suppose, to interview people in prison, and we seem to be um, here a little bit more open about everything, where they prisoners ask for the paperwork of other prisoners to prove their their crime. So it, it, that that happens less here, I believe, than than elsewhere, because there's a culture within our prisons of prisoners asking for the paperwork of other prisoners. Oh. Yeah, I'm. I'm not. I'm not sure about the UK. I, I know that uh, here, um, uh, some some information can be pretty hard to, to get, especially if uh, uh, if it's more recent history. For older material, uh, there is information that's available in places like uh, Library and Archives Canada. Uh, I've I found information there, even online, uh, for people in Canada who were hanged for murder, for example. And there is also um, Canada's most notorious penitentiary was uh, the Kingston Pen. It was that was sort of like our version of Alcatraz. And the old prison, <coughs> excuse me, the old prison is now a museum. And they have archives there as well. And and I have written to um, the, uh, the the Kingston archives and and gotten records of uh, prisoners, uh, you know, criminals who were in there uh, a long time ago. <clears throat> now, when you when you were writing books like uh, Running with Dillinger and uh, the story of Red Hamilton and uh, other forgotten Canadian outlaws. Uh, did Dillinger come through Canada, or was he um, related with some of the other gangsters up here? Well, um, there is a story that he once crossed the border with Red Hamilton uh, and was at Hamilton's family home um, in uh, Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. Now, that, that's a story. Whether, whether or not it's true, who knows? Uh, there was also a story when um, when when everybody was looking for Dillinger and couldn't find him. Somehow a story came out that he was that he had made his way to Canada and he had boarded a ship in uh, uh, Quebec and was headed for the UK. And they radioed to the the ship's captain to tell him to be on the lookout for the people amongst his crew that one of them might be John Dillinger. And when the ship uh, landed uh, at the UK, uh, Scotland Yard detectives were waiting, and they went on board and they searched high and low, but there was, there was no sign of John Dillinger. Now, some people have said that it really was not Dillinger who was killed that day in Chicago, and that he did escape, and that he um, he he laid some bribe money in the right hands, and that he he uh, he did uh, actually get on that ship and make it to the UK. But um, but that's a story. Hmm. 
Was there a lot of gangsters that were up in Canada at the time, or is it just spillover from the U.S.? Um, uh, well, there, there certainly was crime. <laughs> we, um, I, I think uh, we had uh, we had a, a couple of notorious guys. Like in the in the twenties and thirties, there was a guy named Red Ryan who was a notorious bank robber, and he pulled a, a big escape from the Kingston Penitentiary, and then he was recaptured in the United States. And years later, he was paroled, and he was sort of like the poster boy for prison reform. He was giving speeches on, uh, you know, don't lead a life of crime, crime doesn't pay, and, and what have you. And then one day in the city of Sarnia, two men tried to rob a liquor store, and they were killed in a shootout with the police, and when they pulled the mask off one of them, it was Red Ryan. And then in the late 40s and 50s, we had uh, the Boyd Gang in Toronto, who were notorious bank robbers, and they were eventually captured and, and, uh, and went to jail. A couple of them were hanged for murder. I think maybe one of the differences is that um, Canada didn't have a, a film industry to um, uh, make uh, big budget pictures out of the you know people like uh, John Dillinger and Pretty Boy Floyd and Babyface Nelson and all these all these other characters. <laughs> oh, so so there there were some some gangsters up in Canada, but just. They didn't really uh, make any movies about them. Oh yeah, there. Uh, more recently, there actually uh, there actually was a film made about uh, about the Boyd Gang. Um, I don't I don't think anybody has ever done one on Red Ryan. But uh, yeah, when when you think of uh, some you know iconic American movies like uh, like Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, we we haven't really had anything like that. Have you have you uh, considered expanding um, outside of the of the U.S. and Canada and looking at, uh, for example, gang gang behaviors in the U.K.? Um, I actually did uh, a little bit in um, Mad, Bad, and Dangerous Volume Two, which uh, is out now in Kindle. I still don't have a paperback copy, but there was uh, the the first chapter in that book is about uh, Dr. Thomas Neal Cream, and he was uh, he actually was a doctor and a serial killer, and he left a trail of bodies uh, in Canada and the United States and the UK before he was finally caught and hanged. He. Um, he, he, his preferred method was poisoning. And he actually, his, when people come up with a list of names of who might have been Jack the Ripper, his name is one of the ones that is considered, although he's not really a likely suspect because he was in prison at the time that the Ripper murders occurred. Uh, but he has been given the nickname the Ripper's Apprentice. What about the... Uh like the kind of the East End gangsters with the, because um, the craze obviously are very well known. Well, well now, that's, that's, something, that's something that you should mention that, because um, when I was talking earlier about uh, the Wood Brothers, 
they actually were given the nickname the Canadian Craze. Oh, okay. But, but uh, yeah, I, um, I, I did write about the craze in, in another book. I, I did a book uh, for kids called Behind the Badge, which is um, the story of the history of policing. And it goes all the way back to um, ancient times. The, the very first people who were ever called police were in uh, ancient Athens. They were called the Scythian archers. And uh, they were actually state-owned slaves who were um, more like bouncers <laughs> than anything else. They, they, were, they were meant to keep order in the agora, the marketplace. But the book comes all the way up through history to the present time, and I do use the story of the craze as uh, part of my uh, section on uh, Scotland Yard. See, so much was written about the Cray twins themselves, and yet there were so many different people working alongside them or um, underneath them, and their stories must be um, as horrific as the craze, because they were the ones you know, working for these guys and working for other gangs. But we don't hear much about them, and, and um, that's not recorded very, um, not in, in publicly recorded, like the craze are. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that, <coughs> excuse me, I'm sure that will be true with, uh, with almost all of the notorious gangsters. They, they all had a, you know, there's a, a wide circle of uh, people around them, uh, mm. And uh, and I'm sure that in almost every case, if you could pick one of those individuals, you could probably find a very interesting story. Just just the same as with the outlaws of of the old west. Um, you you hear about we hear about uh, you know a handful of the you know the ones who are sort of like icons like Billy the Kid and Jesse James. But there are the many people who were connected to their lives who would also have interesting stories. Of course. You also, you also I noticed you wrote a book called Wartime. Um, <clears throat> tell us a little bit about that and how you got into that. That looks like the First World War in a Canadian Yes, town. it is. Um, yes. Uh, that book uh, uses, um, the, the subtitle is <clears throat> First World War in a Canadian Town, and it uses my hometown of Guelph as an example of what was happening in communities across Canada during the First World War. Like, what was happening here was happening just about everywhere. And you had all the problems with, uh, you know, there were shortages of certain things like different kinds of food and fuel. There was fear of the activity of enemy agents. Uh, there was the, um, the conscription crisis when the Canadian government uh, brought in conscription and, and not everybody liked it. Um, and how that book came into being was um, when, uh, in, in 2014, which was the uh, 100th anniversary of when the First World War began, I, um, I went to the uh, Cenotaph downtown, which has the names of all the people in uh, Guelph who were killed in the two world wars, and I noticed that it struck me that uh, under the listing for 1914-1918, the only name 
that anybody would really know anything about, aside from their family members, was John McRae. He was the he was the guy who wrote the poem in Flanders Fields, mm-hmm. and he he was from Guelph. But I thought, what about all of these other guys? And I started researching the names, and I was I just found the most incredible stories. And I was um, I was having the stories published in uh, the local newspaper, and uh, getting a lot of really great feedback from it, and. Um, uh, I had just written a, a book for a Toronto publisher called uh, James Lorimer. I, I had written a book about uh, stories from uh, Atlantic Canada, and I told him about these um, World War I stories I had been doing, and he said uh, he suggested doing a book on, on the city in, in, for that period. So that's, um, that's how that book came into being. Well, what do you, what do you think about the um, the differences that um, were in the times during the war back then? Because back then they had a lot slower communication. So, what were the people thinking back in in places like Guelph? Well, there was uh, one of the most interesting stories that I came across. Uh, I, I went to the home of uh, this uh, one old gentleman whose father had been killed in the First World War. Now, that's how old this man was. He, he was he was 90-something. And um, uh, his sister was there as well, and she said that uh, they, they, <clears throat> they actually had the telegram that their mother had received telling them, telling her that her husband had been killed. And uh, she, the, uh, the, the sister said that her mother told her that people actually used to dread the sight of the telegram boy on the street because that's how families were informed. Uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, the soldier was killed overseas. Uh, the... Um, the information would be sent to um, London, England, and from there it would be telegraphed to uh, the Canadian government in Ottawa, and the Canadian government would send out the telegrams to the homes like across Canada, informing people of the that you know this person in your family has been killed. So people actually came to dread the sound of the knock on the door because they were afraid it might be the telegram boy with bad news. And they, uh, I was told that neighbors, you know, neighbors are always visiting each other back and forth. If a neighbor was going to visit the home of a family that had someone overseas, when they stepped up to the door, they would not knock because they didn't want to unnecessarily alarm the family who might think it's the telegram boy with bad news. They would shout out, you know, hey, I'm here, or, or something like that, rather than knock. And I, I just... Yeah, much like here. Yeah, I, I just thought that that was a, a, really, a, a really telling anecdote, because people did sort of live, live in dread. And uh, when, 
the, the some of the uh, um, you know sort of eerie things that would happen would be uh, a family might receive the telegram that says uh, your father or your husband or whomever has uh, been killed in action, and a day or two later they receive a letter in the mail from that person that, you know, it, it came by mail, so it's a lot slower than a telegram, and that was, you know, the last letter that the guy wrote before he was killed. Uh, yeah. I've just shared this brief experience I had the other evening. Um, I'm not sure if you know, Ed, but I normally lead on the paranormal side of things with Kevin on the show. And uh, I'm a psychologist. So I I was watching um, the Lord Mountbatten concert for the Royal Marines uh, a couple of days ago. It was a 2018 concert, but I was watching on on, uh, YouTube. And whilst I was watching, a name came straight into my head, very, very clearly, William McInally. So I, I sat there, I was with my husband, I googled the name, and sure enough, he was one of the those killed in, in World War Two. And it, you know, we were just sat there watching something that was so moving and, and thinking about the lives lost and, and the experience of those families and, and how it's been reported. And we, you know, we watched various kind of war documentaries. Uh, and it was so powerful that name coming through to me so so meaningfully. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah, really that is that is amazing. Well, one of the uh, one of the most moving moments that I had um, when I was working on uh, these stories, uh, uh, a lady came to visit me at my house, and she had a, a shoebox uh, looked like a shoebox with some documents and other objects from her uncle who had been killed in the First World War. And one of the items in the box was a leather pouch. And inside the pouch there were some bits and pieces of uh, torn up photographs. And the thing was, this pouch had been really badly, badly shredded because he had it on him when he was killed by an exploding shell. And he was killed by the shrapnel, and the shrapnel had ripped up this pouch that he had, I guess it was inside his tunic, and Mm -hmm. it was sent home with his personal possessions. So she brought it with her when she came to my house to to tell me his story, and I picked it up and I, I thought, wow, like this is what this man had on his person a hundred years ago at the moment of his death. And I thought, like, wow, how closer can you get to to him than that? Incredible, isn't it? Yes, it is. And and one other book you wrote was The Rum, Blood, and Treasure. And that's... uh... Oh, yes, that's... Yeah, that's the collection of uh, stories from from Eastern Canada, from Atlantic Canada. Right, and that was about Captain Jack Randall and uh, rum runners and Al Capone. Uh, 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 yeah, um, uh, Captain Jack Randall was the skipper of a ship called the I'm Alone. Uh, it was a rum runner, and it uh, became part of a, a big scandal because it was uh, it was sunk by the United States Coast Guard, and Randall claimed that. 
the ship was outside of United States territorial waters when the Coast Guard opened fire on him, and the Coast Guard insisted that he was inside uh, United States waters. So it became it became something of an international incident. Wow. Um, so what have you got planned next? Well, I um, right now I am working on uh, a story about another one of the uh, the Guelph men from the First World War. When I was doing the research in the local newspaper, I started finding uh, letters that uh, th this man's name was uh, Herbert Philp, and he was a journalist by profession, but he went to war as an ordinary soldier. So he began writing letters home, and his, his letters, uh, a lot of them were published in the local paper, and they are just incredible eyewitness accounts of the war. And because, uh, I mean, he was, he, a lot of soldiers wrote letters home, but he was writing with the, um, with the eye and the expertise of a professional journalist although not as a war correspondent. Mm. So I have been um, uh, collecting up uh, all, of, all of this material and doing research on his personal life uh, <clears throat> because I would like to do a book about it. He, um, he was in the war for the entire period. He joined up short, shortly after the war began in the summer of 1914. Uh, he went to... Uh, uh, Europe, and he fought in the trenches. He was with the Canadian Army when it marched into Germany after the armistice of uh, uh, 1918. And then he came home, uh, but his his health had been so badly ruined by his war experience that within a few months of arriving home, uh, he died. Uh, apparently of heart failure, and I believe he was just 31 years old. Oh, wow, that's too young. Yeah, very. Yeah. Well. Yeah, so I, I, actually, I actually have found his grave in the local cemetery. Mm. Well, Edward, it's been a pleasure. So uh, what's your contact information for people if you want them to... Uh, uh, of course, we're going to have your book on our site website as well, but uh, if they want to uh, contact you, maybe pass on a story, how would they do that? Um, they, can, they can reach me at my email address. That's edpbutts at yahoo.com. Fantastic. Well, again, it's been a interesting. You've written a lot of great books, um, and uh, we'll have them on our site. And uh, thanks very much, Ed Butts. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks to you, too. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to have sort of met everybody over the phone. <laughs> Monday. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.